Good morning, everyone. Very good Friday to you all. Thank you for joining us for our Good Friday service. Uh, just a couple of notes. There's no kids uh, ministry this morning. If they want any activity pages, they're just through that door, as you may have already noticed the coming and going. Uh, let's just pray, and then we'll open up God's word. Father, this morning we are grateful for your love for us. That you have loved us even though we were enemies, even though we have gone against you, even though we have broken your commands, even though we have not loved you as we should. You loved us and sent your son. We are focused on that in our worship of you this morning and may we continue to do that in our hearts as we ask you uh, to enlighten us as we look at your word. Give us insight into who your son is, our wonderful saviour. It's in his name we pray this. Amen. So we are continuing on uh, in our series of the first few chapters of Genesis. And this morning we're, we're up to the curse, as it's commonly known. And as we think about this and we think about the theme of Good Friday and how Jesus has broken the curse, I thought it'd be good just for us to stop and just walk through this passage briefly and slowly and reflect on what Jesus has done for us and the cure that he's given us uh, for this problem that we all have. Now, have you ever wondered what it would be like if you got everything you wanted? If you had a certain birthday or Christmas list that you sort of put out and you got everything on that list. It would just be spectacular, wouldn't it? What about if you had an unlimited bank account? Unlimited, not talking unlimited credit card, an unlimited bottomless pit of funds that you could draw into. Perfect health, good and healthy relationships where you feel warm and fuzzy and loved and accepted by everybody around you, the ability to do whatever you want without any consequences, including eating those bottomless pits, or bottomless pits, you would become a bottomless pit, bottomless bowls of ice cream or, or whatever it might be. To have life, to have it to the fullest, and even just throw in live forever while you're doing that. Sounds, sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds good. Now these desires and these thoughts of course are not foreign to human experience. These are the very earliest desires of some of our human uh, ancestors as we look at Adam and Eve's example. These des desires, this desire to do whatever you want without consequence, without accountability, without cost, without threat, uh, to just have pure and indulgent blessing for your whole life. These are the earliest desires that humanity has had. The earliest temptations spoke to these desires. Because that sounds a lot like being like God. You could have everything you wanted, all you've ever wanted, with no costs, no accountability. It sounds too good to be true, and that's because it is. It's a lie. It's the first lie that was told and it was the first lie that was believed by Adam and Eve. They wanted this blessing of being autonomous, of being independent from God and yet having all that they ever wanted. And they believed this lie as we looked at last Sunday in the start of Genesis chapter 3. 
They believe this lie from the serpent, who we know from the rest of Scripture, is the devil. And we live in the fallout and the consequence of that choice they made to this very day. So as we walk through these these verses, we see that God confronts sin, that there is a curse to sin, and that we need a cure for sin. So God comes to confront Adam and Eve, as we see in verse 8, God comes walking in the garden and comes to confront Adam and Eve. Now one of the great uh, joys of life at this stage uh, for, for Rachel and I and for parents sometimes with young children is listening to them play hide and seek. I would say playing with them hide and seek but that's a different level of enjoyment. Listening to them play hide and seek, when you sort of hear the laughter, you know the inability of two-year-olds especially to hide for very long. Just the joy that they have as they play this game. What's a very different feeling for a parent is when your children are hiding from you for different reasons. They know they've broken a rule or done something wrong and you're out hunting for them but not in a fun way. It's not just kids that hide though, is it? Now, we've all been ghosted, as the common term is, or we've ghosted other people. Ghosting is a, a term, especially in the modern technological technological age, where you can just ignore people's phone calls, you can ignore their text messages, their emails, you can hide their group chat, you can sort of not open their messages, you certainly avoid eye contact, a bit like some of you are doing this morning, and then, of course, you never ever engage with them in a conversation, because something might come up, and there's something between you that's not quite right, and it's not resolved, so you're avoiding them to the best of your ability. Adam and Eve we find here hiding from God. A bit of a pointless exercise in many ways. But the reasoning for their hiding, they say, is Adam says, I was afraid. And not just that he was afraid, but that he felt guilty. That he was ashamed. He realized they realized they were naked. They were exposed. They were vulnerable. They were helpless. Their attempt to become like God had turned into a massive failure, hadn't it? This is the end result of trying to be like God. Adam and Eve are hiding, afraid, completely exposed and completely vulnerable to everything. This is also now part of our condition. Adam and Eve, as our head parents, have filtered through all generations sin and this reaction to God, to hide from him, to shrink back from him. We ignore him, we ghost him, and we try to make our own life work. We get some fig leaves together, our own various kinds of fig leaves, and try to cover our lives up, try to cover up our our vulnerability, but it doesn't work. We've tried to be like him and discovered we can be nothing like him. We're exposed and incapable of protecting or sustaining ourselves. When God comes to to question Adam about, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree you were told not to eat of? God here is confronting Adam and Eve in their sin. This is something that God takes very seriously. Have you done what I've told you not to do? 
This is the only way you would have that kind of knowledge of yourself, the knowledge of good and of evil. To go against God is to go against the very purpose for which God made you, and that is to bring him glory. And we all fall short of bringing God glory, and God always confronts and deals with sin. He has to. He is holy. We are not. And we should take sin as seriously as God does. But Adam's response in verse 12 and Eve's response in verse 13 give us another game that people like to play. It's still a version of hide and seek, but it's the blame game. This is where finger pointing began. Began right here, back with our earliest parents. Adam points at Eve, says the woman. And he also points to God, the woman you gave me made me do this. Eve then points to the serpent and blames the serpent for her actions. Personal responsibility is not a strong suit for any of us, is it? It's really not. We hide behind what others have done. We even go to the extent of blaming God for our own situation, of our own making, usually. But no one ever makes us sin. No one ever makes us sin. No one ever makes me break God's commands. It's all, I'm always making a personal choice when I go against something that God has said. That angry word that maybe you spoke this morning, that came from your lips. You can say that you were provoked and there were things going on, but that was your lips that spoke it. And it came from your heart. That word of gossip that you spread about someone else is still gossip. Even if you say it is true and it's a word of warning, it's still gossip. That lustful thought that you had came from your own heart, not what someone else was wearing or what they said or how they walked or acted. It was your own heart. Your sin and my sin always belongs to us. We are personally responsible for it. And sin is not just something we're personally responsible for and not just something we do against others. Ultimately, is it, against, it is against God. Sin is always an act of rebellion against God. It's always an act of selfish rebellion. We think of ourselves. We think of the blessing we're going to have. We think of the good stuff we're going to get if we only follow our own path and it doesn't turn out like we think it will. Because sin comes with a curse. If God confronts sin, he must deal with it. He must judge it. And part of that is a curse. Rebellion against God brings pain, it brings conflict, it brings death, it brings the curse. As we go on to see God then addressing the characters in this story who are responsible for their actions. And to curse something is to desire its end, to desire its death, to desire that it will be permanently incomplete. To curse something is the opposite of blessing, it's the opposite of life. To curse something is to wish it dead. 
And all of creation, we're told in Romans 8, is, is groaning. It's all under a curse. It's far-reaching. The result of sin has reached into every pore of creation. All of humanity is affected. All of our lives are expected. All of our experiences of life are in some way affected by the curse. We're all born under it. We're all born into it. Romans 5 tells us that because it's one man, because of Adam's sin, sin has entered the world and has passed on to every single person since. We're all part of this and therefore we're all under God's judgment. God directly judges each party responsible here in our, our reading. He gives them the consequences of their, their action against him and against his design. He speaks to the serpent firstly. And we see that the serpent is, is cursed above all livestock. I can probably agree with that. If I'm in a paddock, I'd rather see cows and sheep and horses than, than anything that doesn't have legs. They're cursed above all livestock. You still have that instinctive nature, least normal people do, of not liking things without legs. But here the serpent is cursed. He's humiliated. He's pointed out that he is already defeated, that he's going to lick the dust for all eternity. He's left to grovel for the rest of his existence. It's, he is an enemy of God, an enemy of God's creation and God's people, who only ever has defeat to look forward to. He has some power. He certainly has some offspring, as we see in verse 15. And Jesus would acknowledge some of Jesus's, sorry, of the serpent's offspring in John 8 when uh, religious leaders are coming to him, rejecting him and questioning him, his authority and, and doubting that he was the son of God. Jesus told them, you are of your father, the devil. So the serpent certainly has offspring. And most of those are manifested in those who are against Jesus, those who are anti-Christ. So he has some power, he has some offspring, but the main curse of the serpent is defeat. Even God's greatest enemy, even our greatest enemy, is already defeated. This being who first rebelled, he can't get any lower. He can't go any lower than he already is. He's destined to have his head bruised or crushed, as Paul puts it in Romans 16. His head is going to be crushed. And the only strength he's going to be able to muster is to be able to bruise something, to bruise the heel. He's pathetic. He's unworthy. He's condemned. Verse 15 also gives us what is called the first announcement of the gospel, this, this constant battle that's going to go on between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And of course we get this picture of the serpent's head being bruised by the heel of the offspring of the women. And of course we see that as being Jesus. The fulfillment of that is in Jesus. This is God's first promise that he will set things right. That all will be made right. And all of the promises of God that flow through the rest of scripture hinge on this promise. If God keeps this one, he'll keep all other promises. The whole book of Genesis turns into a search for this offspring, this seed. 
and in some ways all of scripture, turns into this desire to look and hunt who is going to be the one that does this, who's going to be the snake crusher. Move on to the next few verses and talk about how Eve encountered God after her fall. And God gives her this direct curse in multiplying of pain and of conflict between her and her husband. I've been recently reading a book on childbirth, not to pass the time, but just because I feel like I should lift my game for number three. Didn't carry my weight in the first two, so see how I go. But this book is sort of detailing the history of obstetrics and and it's certainly not enthralling reading but it's revealing in some ways. And the author points out for for many, many years, in westernised culture at least, we've often equated pain in childbirth with the curse. And in some ways that's good but it's also overdone because it's extended to the point where any form of pain relief at certain points in history were actually condemned, uh, which is just not at all what God intended. The curse doesn't imply that um, it'll only be childbirth in which women feel pain. That would imply that all other people who don't give birth would never experience the curse, and that's not what God intended. The curse is given to Eve in this sense, in the fact that she is the mother of all living. And from now on, every woman that is the mother of it is a mother, will experience an amplification of the labour that comes with childbirth, of the pain. Pain will be added to. Pain will be multiplied. It will be amplified. But we must be careful to say childbirth itself is not the curse. That was something God initiated before, was the command to multiply and fill the earth. So we have to be careful with equating too much of that with curse. All labour, the point, and the rest of these next few verses, all labour, all work, will now become more sorrowful. It will now become more painful. It will now become more anxious. The other issue, of course, is conflict. There's no way of reading this account of what went wrong and seeing the consequence of it to say, yes, we see this play out. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's hard work. But also there's conflict between people. There's conflict between male and female. There's conflict between husband and wife. There's conflict in all relationships. We all want our own way and we all seek to live our own way. But God, of course, did not intend it that way. Conflict is the consequence of when we don't follow God's design. The ground, the very ground itself, the very ground is cursed. The ground that brought life to Adam, he came from it, now is a source of also hard work, of pain, of labour, of of toil. This thing that was supposed to be the source of life, of provision, of safety, has now been, and what was placed under man's stewardship now has to be protected from him. Not only is there thorns and thistles and hard work, but the best of it has now been hidden, now protected from humanity. They've put out of the garden. Now, when we think about humanity being put out of the garden, 
again. We often look at that and grieve, what a loss. To have lost the garden, to have lost paradise, but the greatest loss is the presence of God. All of the rest of scripture, again, hinges on this in some ways, because the rest of scripture goes on to express our deep need for the presence of God, that he would be with us, that he would dwell with us. We often grieve the loss of something, of somewhere, but the greatest loss we have in our sin is the loss of someone. We have lost God. So we need a cure for that. We need a cure for this sin that we all have. We need a cure for this curse that overtakes all of us. And God has ways of providing for us. Not just in the promise of the offspring that would come, but also in verse 21, there's sort of this this covering that God provides. Now I don't think uh, that God in, and it's not necessarily a picture of atoning sacrifice, but there's certainly echoes of it. There's an echo in the sense that God has provided a covering for sin, a covering for shame, a covering for guilt. There's still the cost that remains and that is of death. And death has now entered God's good creation. And it was by God's hand that this has come. And he provides an adequate covering. Before when Adam and Eve tried to gather some fig leaves together, it wasn't adequate. They still felt their shame. They felt their sin. They felt their vulnerability. Now, through death and the shedding of blood, they have an adequate covering provided by God. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate the ultimate thing that God provides, not just to cover sin, not just to put it away for a time, but to pay the full, complete price. Jesus, who was himself not sinful, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. He was not cursed. He had not broken God's word. In Jesus' garden, there was an option for him to go his own way and he chose instead to submit to the Father's hand and the Father's will. He, Galatians 3 tells us, he became cursed for us. Because we see that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, the law said, and Jesus became that for us. Jesus fully satisfied what God required. He did it in such a way that the very curse itself begins to unravel. The very thing that unravels our existence, our life, our experiences of life, the very thing that permeates everything and messes it up, it itself begins to become undone. One day, everything will be set right. One day, when Jesus reigns here on earth, just as he does in heaven, even the sad things will become untrue. Even death will be undone. No more pain, no more tears, no more fear. God will be with us again and we will not be afraid. We will not feel guilt, we will not feel shame. Now this curse has reached into our hearts and maybe you feel the weight of that this morning. Our hearts, our minds, our relationships, our loves, our work, 
our homes, our families, our health. It's not just the weeds in the garden, it's not just the dishes in the sink, it's not just the nine to five slog of working every day. It's getting sick on a long weekend. It's that fight you had with a sibling. It's that friend that's avoiding you and ghosting you. It's that neighbour or, or co-worker that you've had an argument with. It's the sick child in the middle of the night. It's the ill parent. It's the bad marriage. It's the singleness. It's the divorce. It's the miscarriage. It's the infertility. It's death. It's the grieving friend, the chronic illness. It's the lies and betrayal of broken trust and broken relationships and ruined lives. The curse reaches far and wide. Jesus, though, comes and his salvation reaches across that. He breaks the curse by becoming the curse. He brings blessing. He brings love. He brings acceptance as a child of God once more. He brings forgiveness of sins, ultimately. So far as the curse is found, and you can find it everywhere, that's how far, that's how far Jesus' blessing has come to break it. A wiser and more talented Watts than I has said these words that I'm going to close with this morning. And this is the song I want you reverberating in your minds going out, which seems strange for this time of year. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Father, if it was not for your love, we would not be here, I would not be here. If it was not for the sacrificial death of a saviour, I would not be here. I would not have forgiveness of sins. We would not have a right relationship with you. It was because of your son and because of his great love that we can have blessing instead of curse. We can have life instead of death. We can have joy instead of pain. I pray for any here this morning that feel the weight of the curse and can see that Jesus has taken that from them, that has broken that. I pray that any here this morning that don't know Jesus has broken their curse, that they would know that right now through your grace and by your spirit. Lord, help us to worship you as a saviour who has broken all things, as a God who has defeated our greatest enemy. And we praise you in the victorious and triumphant name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen.